0: Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today.
1: Stay tuned for a special edition of Detroit Today where we'll answer the questions you have about the coronavirus with a doctor who can tell you what you should be doing, what you shouldn't and how to process all the confusing things that are happening around us. We want to take your calls at 313-577-1019. That's all next on Detroit Today, right after the news from NPR. today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson and as always I'm really glad you have joined us. We wanted to give you an extra opportunity to call in and share how you're doing in this time of uncertainty and anxiety over over the spread of a deadly viral disease. Today we want to take your calls and comments and your questions about COVID-19. What things should you be doing? What things should you not be doing? And if you're starting to see people exhibit symptoms, if you are starting to have symptoms yourself, what are the things that you should do or not do to try to take care of yourself, to try to make sure that the worst possible outcomes of this terrible disease don't befall you? Each day here on Detroit Today, we are getting calls from you about these things and wondering what Things that uh, we should all be trying to take care of ourselves by doing. We've added this extra hour from two to three today as a way to address specific questions that people have, things that people have called and asked, and to open the phones this hour to let you ask live with a doctor here in our studio in order to get you the kinds of information that you really need right now. As always, the number on the phones here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. And uh, we will try to work you into the conversation. And joining us again for this hour is Dr. Paul Kilgore. He is an associate professor and director of research at the Wayne State University College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences. Dr. Kilgore, Kilgore, welcome back to Detroit Today.
0: Thank you very much, Stephen. Very good to be here.
1: Yes, it's great to have you. Before we get to questions, I've got a lot of questions that have piled up since last time we did this um but i want to give you a chance to talk about what you think we're seeing at this point in the in the curve i guess of of the pandemic of coronavirus things seem to be getting much worse i think uh, those of us who are uh, are starting to see people get sick uh, there are several people i know at this point who have died of coronavirus. Uh, It's a scary, scary time. I, I wonder if you can try to put it in some context for us. Where are we in all of this, and what more should we expect?
0: Right. So, Stephen, that's a great question. I think one of the things to note is that we are definitely on the upslope of the epidemic curve right now, and that's true for the Detroit area and southeast Michigan. Uh, and it's also true for other metropolitan areas around the United States. And so when we look at the epidemic curve right now as it's going, um, and also keeping in mind the interventions that we have in place right now, uh, namely sheltering in place and social distancing and good hygiene, it is still going to be difficult to know exactly when we hit the top of that curve. And right now, uh, as you know, We're experiencing a heavy patient load in Detroit area hospitals, and uh, the the case numbers continue to accrue in Detroit and surrounding areas.
1: And can you compare where we are in all of this, for instance, to New York, which is dominating the national news in terms of how bad things are there, or compare us to countries like Italy or Spain where we know – early failures to get things under control in terms of distancing people and other measures led to incredible incredible infection rates.
0: So it looks like we are a little bit behind in terms of the epidemic trajectory uh, compared with New York and and most definitely we're behind the trajectory that Italy has been experiencing. So in some ways that could be a good thing since We've been implementing our social distancing and our sheltering in place for some time. But we also know that there's a lot of people at risk for serious disease, serious infections, and also complications of the virus in the infection. So when we look at the total population and the trajectory of the curve, we really have to look at underlying conditions in the population that might either mitigate the curve, or the epidemic curve, help it come to a stop, or may even propel it forward.
1: Okay, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page or Twitter, put comments there, and we'll try to work you into the conversation. Call with your specific questions about coronavirus, uh, the medical implications of all of this, uh, questions about whether people you know are sick, what to do, how to interact with the health systems that are overwhelmed in our community uh, at this point, Uh, but also call and just let us know how you're doing. One of the really important things that we're trying to do here on Detroit Today is provide this platform, this gathering space that we do each day as a way to connect with each other at this time. Uh, Lieutenant Governor Garland Gilchrist joined us this morning and talked really powerfully about the value and power of human voice at a time like this especially for people who are weathering this alone in their houses or their apartments and unable to have very much human uh, physical contact at all the ability to talk with somebody to tell somebody your story to just com- connect uh, in the way that we can at this point Uh, We want to make sure that you're doing that as well. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We're going to start with this question. Larry wants to know, with spring coming, do we need to be concerned about mosquitoes transmitting this disease? That's a really interesting question. Uh, Dr. Kilgore, what's the answer?
0: So coronavirus is not a vector-borne disease. So we have no evidence that there's any transmission through a mosquito or other insect. So that's good news. We also know that the major route for coronavirus transmission is really respiratory droplet spread. So that's person-to-person droplet spread or contact on a contaminated surface where there's been coronavirus and still viable virus. But no mosquitoes have been found to transmit coronavirus. And so we can worry about other diseases that mosquitoes transmit in the summertime. Uh, but we don't need to worry about coronavirus specifically uh, passed on by mosquitoes.
1: Hmm. So so that also, for me, invokes the idea of seasonal change and how we expect coronavirus to perhaps react to that. One of the things that people say all the time is, well, flu season is going to come to an end, and so the flu will sort of... Take a back seat uh, for for a little bit do we expect coronavirus to behave the same way
0: there is some data for coronavirus transmission and the seasonal patterns but most of it is quite limited and one of the reasons why this has come up with viral disease transmission is that we know to some extent that in the cooler drier months when air humidity is lower that some viruses may actually Transmit farther. They may go further in respiratory droplet spread because the air is not wading down the droplet as much with higher humidity. Hmm. Also, the idea that um, we know is that when there are viruses circulating, and different respiratory viruses we know have different seasonal patterns. We know, for example, that influenza virus and human metanumal viruses have other seasonal patterns that may not look like influenza, may not predominate necessarily in the cooler months. So there is a chance that we could actually see transmission of coronaviruses in warmer months. The other thing I should mention is that when we go to warmer climates like tropical zones, uh, Singapore is a good example. There are some viruses that are circulating in warmer climates in the tropical zone year-round. And that is more of a flat curve. You don't see the dramatic seasonal peak that you see with influenza, for example. But they have cases of viral diseases year-round. We're learning a lot more about coronaviruses, and I'm sure that going forward, um, we're going to be able to have some sense of whether or not um, there's going to be a persistent risk through the summer. And that also will depend on the population immunity that we see going forward and how many people become infected and immune. Uh, to the current coronavirus that we're seeing. Yeah,
1: Uh, great questions already. Let's get to the phones and questions there. Let's go to Pat in Detroit. Pat, what's on your mind? Hi,
2: thanks for taking my call. I, I actually had two questions. The first was, I keep seeing really alarmist headlines like from CNBC, the coronavirus death rate may be worse than the Spanish flu, with very little evidence to support that. And I wonder how the doctor feels about those kinds or any kind of comparison to past pandemics.
1: Great question, Pat. Uh, What about the headlines? I mean, are we seeing alarmist kinds of things being announced, or is this just a reflection of how bad this really is?
0: So there's a couple of things that actually determine mortality in an epidemic. So back in the 1918-1919 pandemic, uh, they were really fighting several challenges. One was that we really didn't have antibiotic therapy. Uh, the other challenge is that we didn't really understand much about epidemiology, diagnostics, and or patterns of transmission among uh, people. So since that time, we've learned a lot. The other thing I should say is that since that time, we've discovered a lot of viruses, kind of them how they work, how they infect people. And so now, based on that new knowledge, we're able to design not only new drugs, but new vaccines to fight these new viruses like novel coronavirus. So there's a lot of differences there. The other differences, of course, that would dictate um, mortality differences is our ability to care for patients who are acutely sick. So being able to put people on a ventilator is very important. Being able to actually treat them in an acute care setting that didn't really exist back in the 1918, 1919 period is really important. Having said that, one of the things that is really important to know about this is that it's a tricky virus. It's being spread uh, very easily and the rate of infection is very high. The force of infection, the reproductive number is higher than influenza. We also know that as it progresses in the infection in the body, Um, it can accelerate very quickly. There are really uh, good reports now coming out where people become infected, and within a few days they're in the hospital in the intensive care unit. And all of that is dependent upon the underlying health condition of a population. So the other factor that goes into determining mortality in a population is how many people are suffering from underlying diseases that are going to put them at higher risk for death, And if we compare the general U.S. population to our population that we have now and we compare 1918-19 to now, um, we actually see a different spectrum of underlying medical conditions that we didn't have necessarily back then. Um, But there's other risks, too, that we have had back then that we don't have now. So when we put these all into play in mathematical models for calculating the trajectory of the epidemic and mortality – this is part of the reason why we see variation in mortality estimates, and as we speak, right now there are modelers putting in new parameters, new input into these models so that we can get a much more precise estimate of mortality. And I'm sure over time, as we get better at treating these uh, infections and we get a better idea of what is the best combination of therapy, we could actually see um, a decline in what we call the case fatality rate as we all get better treating the infection another key of course is healthcare access and getting people in when they're seriously ill before they get to the point where it's very difficult to save them so there's a lot of factors that go into mortality it's going to vary across the nation and so i think time will tell how this changes in different locations too yeah
1: yeah pat i really appreciate the call and the questions let's go to john on the east side john welcome to the show
2: thank you so uh
0: Specifically, it got me thinking, uh, so my sister thinks she has it. She's a school teacher in Detroit, and she's always getting sick from the, the bugs and such. Uh, her doctor just told her to self-quarantine, and she has. My brother-in-law, he's been living downstairs and staying away from her, and and she's getting better, and she's like on day 13 or 14. So the specific questions, I'm glad you answered the one about the mosquitoes, but once she gets better, how, is she still going to be able to pass it on to my brother-in-law or what? And how do we clean the house? And then the, the other thing is, what about the mutations? Of, like the flu virus, doesn't that mutate so the flu shots don't always work? So are we, can we expect this this to mutate like that as well?
1: Hmm. And I mm-hmm. thank,
0: you, thank you very much.
1: Yeah, John, I appreciate the call. Mm-hmm. Dr. Kilgore, sure. go ahead.
0: Yeah, I'll take the second question first. So based on the data we've seen so far, uh, coronavirus can mutate, but it, it mutates much slower than influenza virus. And influenza mutates in a couple different ways. And that's part of the reason why you see the need to create a new vaccine each year, because it changes sometimes dramatically from one season to the next. So the good news is so far right now, we haven't seen tremendous mutation in coronavirus. So that's much less of a worry right now. When you talk about individuals at home and you have someone who's recovered or recovering uh, from an illness, um, we know that the virus can be shed even when individuals have recovered clinically. So in other words, they have very little or no signs and symptoms. They're on the mend, they're recovering, they feel good. Uh, But during that recuperation period, we've learned that actually people can shed virus, which means that they can release virus into the environment. And the virus can come out in two ways. One is through fecal oral or fecal contamination in the environment. And the other would be through respiratory droplets that have some amount of virus in them. Hmm. So in her situation, to protect um, other individuals in the home, of course, great hand hygiene is going to be important. Um, I would also recommend regular cleaning of the surfaces, and uh, there's a list on the EPA website of uh, recommended disinfection products, which is a really good list. Then I would also recommend making sure that all the food is prepared and all the surfaces where the food is prepared are really uh, cleaned and wiped down with some of these products that are recommended for disinfection. And then also um, keep in mind that Um, So far, we have not seen individuals who have experienced the disease. We haven't seen reinfection or recrudescence of the infection and disease in individuals. There is, though, something to know that one of the reasons why we're doing a vaccine and developing a vaccine is to develop what we call neutralizing antibody. And what we know is that individuals who are infected with coronavirus will actually generate two kinds of antibody. One antibody is the neutralizing antibody, which will actually fend off the virus directly by blocking attachment to the spike protein to the cells in your body. The other kind is a binding antibody, which which is created in response to another part of another antigen on the virus. That is less effective in halting spread of the virus or halting infection with the virus. So as we look forward to vaccines, the neutralizing antibody is going to be key to look at. And that's also one of the reasons why we want to do serial surveys in the population to see who has antibody and who doesn't. That will help us control the infection more.
1: Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue our call in hour with Dr. Paul Kilgore, where you can get your medical questions answered about the coronavirus, Uh, call and ask us anything about how you handle all of this, uh, what you should be doing, what you shouldn't be, and how we all make it through to the other side when the curve comes down and maybe we're able to get back to normal. Also call and just tell us how you're doing, how all of the changes that we're experiencing look in your life and uh, how you're feeling about all of that. 313-577-1019 is always the number on the phone. Charlie in Detroit, Ed in Utica. We'll get to you next. We also have a pile of other listener questions. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, thanks very much for joining. We are in the middle of a special edition of Detroit Today at 2 p.m. from 2 to 3 today. Just to answer your medical questions, specific questions about coronavirus, the pandemic that we are all living through right now. Uh, We have Dr. Paul Kilgore with us. He is Associate Professor and Director of Research at the Wayne State University College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences. He's here to make sure that we give you information that you need uh, to know what you're supposed to be doing, what you shouldn't be doing, and how to respond if you start to show symptoms, if people around you start to show symptoms, how to deal with uh, all of the things that are changing in our world. As always, the number on the phones here is 313-577-1019. It's 313 577 1019 You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and we'll try to work you into the conversation. We also want you to just call and let us know how you're doing. That is something we've been doing here on Detroit today since all of this started, giving you the opportunity to connect with other folks here in Southeast Michigan to tell them how you're doing, to tell us how you're doing, and to get that connection that we're all now missing in the physical world. Let's go to Ed in Utica. Ed, welcome to the show.
0: Hey, guys. Thanks for taking the call. Sure. Um, So I go to social media for all my news. No, just kidding. Um, (laughs) And one of the things I saw was don't take Advil. But I go to the CDC site, and it says Advil's uh, okay. So little knowledge, please.
1: Mm, great question. Thanks for the call. Uh, go ahead, Dr. Kilgore.
0: Sure. Thank you. And so the recommendation right now is the first choice for anti-fever medicine, so lowering fever, is really Tylenol. That's the drug of first choice right now. And Uh, The other thing I would say is when you have um, a situation where you may go to your local drugstore, and I've heard reports already um, that some local pharmacies don't have Tylenol in stock, or if you don't have Tylenol in stock, what do you do at home? So ibuprofen or other similar anti-inflammatory can help lower fever as well. It can be used if Tylenol either is not available or... If you use Tylenol and it doesn't actually bring down the fever as much, and and sometimes people do need both. So you can use ibuprofen. Um, The first choice would be Tylenol, but if Tylenol is not available, yes, you can use ibuprofen. And the concerns have been in the past related to um, potential for changing the ability of yourself to fight off the infection or fight off a viral infection uh, with the administration of a drug like ibuprofen that, in in some studies, has shown um, some immune suppression and some changes in the immune system. But right now, you know, with this virus, we don't actually have any specific data in the context of a coronavirus infection. So, when you think about the options, uh, go first for tylenol. If tylenol is not available, or if your fever is not getting down to to a comfortable level, you can add ibuprofen. Mm-hmm. And one more thing I would mention, uh, Stephen, for one of the uh, last caller's questions about uh, being at home and then having illness recovering and, and what to do. One option, um, depending on where they live and, and how mobile they are, is to potentially have a, an additional test done. So if someone's at home, they're recovering from illness, and they have other people at home that they are concerned about passing the virus too. Uh, In addition to all the hygienic measures that one would employ, the other thing that could be done is to go in and get a nasal swab done and see if they are test positive. Hmm. If they are test positive, then continued isolation at home for an additional time period of about one to two weeks would be appropriate along with hygienic measures. But that test, the RT-PCR test, will detect whether or not the individual is shedding virus, and that then could tell you whether or not there's a risk of releasing virus in the environment uh, through feces contamination or hygienic issues or even the respiratory route, droplet spread. Mm. I hope that helps.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's a that's a wonderful explanation. I want to go to Steve in Dearborn Heights because he's got a kind of related question. Steve, go ahead.
2: Yeah. Hi, Stephen. So um, I'm I'm on my fifth day, probably today. Uh, It's not like one or two days before it's like um, my throat and then my upper chest. Uh, But then that thing goes. I don't have fever. I don't have any cough, uh, but... Lately, I have like so um, fatigue. I can't even lift my
0: myself from my bed.
2: Mm. I don't know what stage am I. Like, uh, I'm calling my doctor to get tested, but I'm I'm sure I'm I'm not sure
0: what what stage uh, like is gonna take more. Like like uh, one week more or or fourteen days. I'm not sure.
1: Mm. Uh, Steve, first of all, we wish you the best and hope that this is. A, not coronavirus, and B, that even if it is, that uh, your symptoms continue to be mild. But uh, Dr. Kilgore, give him some pointers here about how, what he should do. How should he be reacting to what he's feeling?
0: So um, for someone who's in the first week of illness, uh, there's a couple of things I think that are important. One is make sure you document the symptoms that you're experiencing. So write them down. As completely as you can recall and are experiencing, and if you have a thermometer at home, measure your temperature. Uh, you can do it multiple times a day, and then just write down the time of the day. Uh, if you're doing it multiple times a day, or at least measure it once a ta- once a day and write that down, so that information can be communicated to your healthcare provider. That's very important. That helps them understand what you're experiencing, what you're going through, and then they can guide you for uh, additional steps. For example going in the emergency room or other things. One of the signs and symptoms of the coronavirus infection, uh, Stephen described really well, and that is the extreme fatigue. And everyone has heard of the shortness of breath, the high fever, the cough. Um, There are some other signs and symptoms like fatigue that has been widely reported as well. And also muscle aches, sore throat, headache has been reported. And then the unusual signs and symptoms, unusual presentation would be the loss of taste and the loss of smell sensation. Hmm. There's another one that's important for people to know about, too, that may actually come on before the respiratory signs and symptoms, and that's the GI tract uh, dysfunction. It's really nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea that we want to watch out for there. And then finally, one other sign and symptom that has been seen in coronavirus patients is conjunctivitis. So that's the redness, the injection of the eyes, we call it um, when it gets, they get bloodshot. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing I need to mention is that one of the things that has been observed clinically with patients that have the infection is that they appear to wax and wane in their signs and symptoms. So they will feel um, sick for a time and then they feel like they're recovering. And then suddenly they take a turn for the worse and they get more signs and symptoms. They get more severe disease and so that makes people obviously very anxious and worried if that happens and if anyone experiences that that's really important time to get in touch with your health care provider either by phone or by telemedicine and really get on the phone make sure you tell them how you're feeling and how it's changing this is very important And if you can't get a hold of them and things are changing and you feel worse then that's the time when you need to go in and get seen in the emergency department um, because sometimes this illness can advance quickly and you don't want to be caught kind of flat-footed and not being able to respond. So I think the key thing is staying close communication with your own health care provider. If you don't have a health care provider, what I would recommend is looking up one in a nearby clinic. Uh, even if you don't have health insurance or uh, coverage in any way, make sure you get in communication with any healthcare care provider, uh, a physician and nurses in their clinic, so that they can actually give you advice on where to go, because we don't want anyone to go without treatment of this disease, uh, because it's important for everyone that you get seen.
1: Hmm. And I think it's important to remember that, A, this is still flu season, and there are lots of people with the flu. Perhaps even more people with the flu still than with coronavirus. It's also spring, which for a lot of people is allergy season, and things like <clears throat> a, a cough or congestion are, are associated with those things too. That makes it more confusing, I think, for for folks to to know when they're experiencing something that they that they really ought to respond to as though it might be coronavirus. Okay, again, uh, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's go to Michael in Detroit. Michael, welcome to the show. Hey there. Hey. Um,
0: my question is, I'm wondering if they're using uh, NAC, which is, I'm not going to pronounce it properly, amino acid, uh, N-acetylene
1: cysteine.
0: Um, they're using a nebulizer for cystic fibrosis. Or, is there any thoughts or has there been any attempts to use it for the coronavirus, for the, you know, the lung infection?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question, Michael. You're talking about drugs that are used to treat other kinds of <clears throat> breathing ailments. Uh, Dr. Kilgore, is that something that's going on in hospitals at this point?
0: So I'm familiar with NAC, and, and for listeners, NAC stands for N-acetylcysteine. N-acetylcysteine, and uh, the listener is actually quite right, the uh, drug is actually used for treatment of cystic fibrosis patients. N-acetylcysteine has several interesting uses, but one of the things that we know about it, or NAC, is that it actually is an uh, antioxidant. And so there are studies in the military, actually, where they're using it to look at uh, prevention of hearing loss uh, due to blast injury. And it appears to have some protection against hearing loss by preserving the hair cells in your ear and your uh, hearing. The other way that it's being investigated is in sickle cell anemia as a drug to actually prevent uh, sickling of the red blood cells. So two interesting applications. So far, I've been as I track the research being logged in at clinicaltrials.gov. That's one website, clinicaltrials.gov. The other website that people can look at is the Chinese Clinical Trial Registry, uh, and that's chictr.org.cn. Uh, the Chinese Clinical Trial Registry and clinicaltrials.gov, as well as the studies listed in the WHO registry, uh, are not looking at the use of N-NAC or NAC or N-acetylcysteine. The other drugs that are being used, though, are looked at is, as you've heard in the news, I think, is hydroxychloroquine Mm -hmm. is one. The brand name is Plaquenil. And then they're looking at the use of that in combination with antibiotics, such as azithromycin or doxycycline. And also there are trials going on looking at uh, the combination of these drugs with zinc. And there's also combination trials going on with steroids um, as well for more severely ill patients who are in the intensive care unit. So there is a lot of research going on right now. Uh, We could dedicate a whole show to it, I'm sure. Mm. But for NAC, for N-acetylcysteine, there are no current studies being done right now. Mm.
1: So Janice on Twitter has a question that I know is on lots of people's minds. She wants to know if we have any information about how long the virus lasts on refrigerated items. Can we assume there will not be significant live virus after several days? She says grocery shopping and food prep are creating a lot of anxiety for her. I think they are creating a lot of anxiety for a lot of people. Uh, let's talk about refrigeration and things like that with regard to this virus.
0: So we know that the virus can survive on surfaces for several hours, uh, longer on stainless steel than and, and on plastic than other surfaces. When you bring home groceries from the grocery store, you can wipe down the outer packaging of the container it may be a cardboard box for example or it may be plastic Um, you can wipe that down and let it air dry uh, before you put it in the refrigerator that's one technique you can use Um, if the food is in a container where you can unpackage it and then put it in a second container that you know is clean for example a tupperware container then that's another approach that you can do to remove uh, or reduce the possibility of cross-contamination in your kitchen And then when you look at uh, wiping down the outer surface, um, you can also then make sure after you do all that and you bring home your your groceries, make sure that you do your diligent hand washing for the 20 seconds each time, and then make sure that you throw out the packaging in a separate plastic bag and then discard that into your garbage so that there's really, you're taking it out of the environment of the kitchen completely. Hmm.
1: Um, Steve on Twitter says what precautions should I be taking when showing a house for sale now Steve I'm going to say this and I'm not the governor of the state of Michigan but I'm pretty sure that that violates the stay at home order that we're all under so I want to preface that uh, before we get to your uh, the substantive answer to your question I'm not sure people should be showing houses at this point but That is a good question. Uh, There are some instances in which people are in close quarters together indoors. What should they be doing? So specifically
0: for this question related to showing houses, I have a couple suggestions. Um, Number one, because there is a stay-at-home order, there is another approach that you can use. And if you go on to real estate websites now, of course, they have the virtual tours that you can look at and view. Yep. Those are actually very useful, and what, what a real estate agent could do is have the prospective buyer look at that virtual tour as they are on the phone with them and then walk them through the house using the virtual tour if they have that video already created. If they don't have the video created and they have pictures, they could do the same thing with pictures and just kind of walk the buyer through that. I had this question actually a few weeks ago back before the order came about. And my response back then, before we had the stay-at-home order was, uh, first, um, I don't think having an open house is a good idea. Um, And this was back in February. Mm. Um, And the reason I said that is that we know that the virus can be transmitted. And if you try to uh, really convince people to stay in that six to 10-foot distance between each other in an open house on a Sunday afternoon when you have everyone coming through it becomes very difficult to keep people separated and prevent transmission. So I recommend it to the agent at that point to have single appointments for all the prospective buyers and bring them in one by one so that there's no chance of potentially uh, transmitting it from one potential buyer to another.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, Steve, thank you very much for the question we're going to take another quick break and when we come back we'll continue with uh, dr paul kilgore answering your questions your medical questions about the coronavirus brian in detroit charlie in detroit and in detroit we'll get to you next we've also got a big pile of other listener questions but if you want to join them 313-577-1019 is the number on the phone so you can also go to facebook and twitter put questions there we'll work them into the conversation here We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Anderson and as always I'm really glad you've joined us. My guest is Dr. Paul Kilgore. He is an associate professor and director of research at the Wayne State University College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences. We're talking about your questions, we're answering your questions, your medical questions about the coronavirus, about the pandemic that we're all living through right now. We're also just catching up on how you're doing, hearing how you're doing through all of this, Uh, whether you are starting to show symptoms yourself, whether someone around you is perhaps sick, uh, or whether you just want to connect with somebody else. There are so many people right now who are missing that physical interaction that we count on so much in our lives. Uh, We're trying to make Detroit Today a way to connect with other human beings, uh, get some of that power of the human voice in your day each day. Uh, if you want to join the conversation here, you've got a question for Dr. Kilgore, just want to talk about what is going on around us, as always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll get you into the conversation. Uh, let's go to Anne in Detroit. Anne, welcome to the show. Hey, how are you? I'm good. How are you?
2: Fantastic. Thank you. Go right ahead. Um, I was just calling in. I am an emergency medicine doctor in Detroit, mm-hmm. so we've been obviously uh, seeing tons and tons of patients uh, with suspected or confirmed COVID-19 disease, um, and the reason I'm calling is to let people know um, I've, I've gotten a lot of people reaching out to me wanting to help uh, You know, people are stuck at home, and they feel helpless, and they want to contribute in some way to um, to help fight this disease. And as most people know, there's a huge need for protective equipment for doctors, nurses, tech, EMS providers, all sorts of people that need N95, which are the specialized masks, as well as other things. And so anyways, um, I started a GoFundMe, so if people feel so inclined and would like to donate, um, I am obtaining N95s and other protective equipment
1: hmm. for
2: the frontline workers in all of Metro Detroit, not just a specific hospital or hospital system.
1: Yeah. Where where can people find that GoFundMe, Ann?
2: So um, I will send you guys a link if you'd like to post it. If um, yeah. people go to GoFundMe and they uh, look up, the, the name of the actual page is protect people who provide emergency care, okay. or they can look up my name, which is Ann Messman. Um, they will be able to to find it that way. Yeah. And then um, sort of the, the plug that I'm pitching is that for $5, you could protect a healthcare worker for a day. That would buy them a surgical mask and an N95. So even a $5 contribution uh, would go a long way hmm. to, to help protect our workers.
1: Yeah. And that's, that's terribly important, and uh, we will put that link on our social media as well as on the WDET website. But, um, but, uh, but again, thanks very much for what you're doing, not just in terms of that fundraiser, but going to work every day for you at this point is just a, a tremendous sacrifice. There's all kinds of risk involved, but I also imagine that there is a lot of heartache uh, uh, all the time in emergency rooms right now. So we really appreciate your calling and being part of the program, but even more, we appreciate what you're doing. Let's go to Hazel in Detroit. Hazel, welcome to the show. Hazel, we need you to turn your radio down. Oh,
2: turn the radio down. <laughs> okay. I'm going to turn it down right now.
1: Okay. Go ahead. Hi. Hi. How are you?
2: Uh, I'm fine. Um, uh, Hi, Dr. Uh, Kilgore. My question is, I hear on the news to wear a mask if you're contagious, or if, you, if you're if you not, you still to wear a mask. And I just want clarification to what to do mm. when you go grocery shopping. You have to go grocery shopping.
1: Yes. Hazel, you're absolutely right. I was at the grocery store today. <laughs> lots of people are there trying to get food which we all which we all need and you're right it's confusing that you see some people with masks you see others without them uh, dr. Kilgore why don't you start with telling us what the masks actually do do they protect you or do they protect other people and should we all be wearing them
0: so the mask is the n95 NIOSH certified mask and they can protect Individuals from releasing virus into the environment. So if you're sick with coronavirus, for example, it can block uh, most of the virus from being released. It can also reduce your exposure, so that's obviously why healthcare workers are using them routinely. If you are healthy at home and you have no signs and symptoms, Uh, I would say that right now you wouldn't have to wear a mask if you're just going in and out of the store and you're not going to spend a long time there. Of course, when you're in the store, make sure you do the social distancing and make sure you wipe down the cart, the shopping carts are using that. So take hand sanitizer or your your wipes if you have those. And a lot of stores have them as you go in the entrance. But for wearing the mask specifically, um, I would say you don't have to wear it. And the other reason, of course, that I say that is that right now, as you heard with a previous caller, and and thanks to Ann for calling in, by the way, this is really important time for us to make sure that our healthcare workers have the masks that they need. Mm-hmm. So we want to preserve those masks for people that really need them. Having said that, if you do have any kind of immunocompromised condition, you may be an organ transplant patient, or you may have just completed or been on cancer chemotherapy or you're on other drugs that will suppress you, or you have another high-risk condition, then I think that could be a reason to justify wearing the mask. But if you don't have those conditions and you're going shopping, I would say you don't need the mask. And, uh, Stephen, I also want to mention one other thing uh, from a previous caller who asked about food in the refrigerator and, and freezing. You know, right now, we don't know if the SARS coronavirus is going to be killed by cold or freezing temperatures. So that research is going on right now. We do know that other viruses with really, really low temperatures can be inactivated. But this is a temperature that's typically below the home freezer temperature. So we don't know for sure if refrigerator temperature will kill it or even regular freezers will do it. So time will tell. Uh, whether or not that will work. But for now, I think the assumption would be that it does not.
1: Hmm. Uh, Hazel, I really appreciate the call and the question there. Let's go to Brian in Detroit. Brian, welcome to the show. Uh, Good afternoon. Hey.
0: My question is, uh, based on a previous caller, once you've had the virus, you say you may still be contagious How long after your symptoms have cleared would you be contagious?
1: Right, Great question, Brian. It's the question I think that's on everyone's mind, which is how long before you can get back to kind of normal life after you have been sick? Dr. Kilgore?
0: So in the ideal setting, uh, we would like to be able to test people as they recover to make sure that they are not shedding virus. If you're able to get into a testing facility and they will do that test for you, given your experience with the illness, that's great. So you can get a repeat test done or confirm that you're test negative so that you know you're not shedding virus either through the respiratory droplets or uh, fecal excretion. So that's one approach. The other thing, though, is that we know based on studies from China and other places is that people can be asymptomatic after they've recovered from the illness and they may be shedding even uh, up to four weeks after the initial start of the illness. So when we look at the shedding of virus, we know it can happen through the respiratory droplets and fecal material, and that can be completely um, uh, without symptoms. So when people are at home recovering and wondering when to go back to work, um, the, the biggest thing would be if you can get a test done to confirm that you're not shedding, that would be reassurance. If you can't get the test done, then I would after recovery, uh, because the illness takes generally one to two weeks to recover, I would add another two weeks after that to be on the safe side and then uh, feel more comfortable going out and engaging others and it could be for work or other things, but I would give it a two-week period after the recovery.
1: Hmm. Uh, Let's go to Charlie in Detroit. Charlie, welcome to the show.
0: Yeah, hi, Stephen. I hope You and your family and all the extended DET family are doing well. Um, I'm trying to stay active, ride my bike, uh, whatever I can do, go into work a little bit just to check on folks. But one thing I was wondering is we buy a lot of stuff from China, Um, nothing against the Chinese, but should we be concerned about some of the materials we buy and get shipped over here? Um, A lot of them are wrapped in plastic. Um, Is that a concern? Is there any screening done? Does it need to be a concern?
1: Mm. Great question, Charlie. Lots of us get packages still at our houses and businesses all the time. How should we be handling those, Dr. Kilgore? So the guidance on this is
0: that we do not need to worry about uh, incoming packages from China having virus on them. And that's going to be the case for a couple of reasons. One is that the time required from the time they get packaged in China to the time that they arrive is going to be on the order of days. And we also know that the virus does not survive as long on plastic and cardboard or paper as it does on things like stainless steel. So the exposure that you would have is um, very, very low risk to nil. And something it's not something that we worry about. Um, so the guidance is you can order packages. If they come from China, you can you know clean the outside as you would any other package or mail that you get. Um, but other than that, you don't worry about exposure to the virus because it came from China. Hmm.
1: Yeah, great answer. Uh, that's, a, that's a really important information given some of the things that people are saying about this virus and associating it, it with uh, certain uh, people of certain ethnic uh, backgrounds and, and things mm-hmm. like that. Let's go to Joe in Livonia. Joe, welcome to Detroit today. You there, Joe? Are you there, Joe? Hi. Uh, I'm sorry. Yes, I am. How are Good. you? Good. How are you?
0: Good afternoon. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to find out, um, I was exposed to someone on the 20th of March. Mm-hmm. And uh, from what I understand, there was a 14-day delay period if the, you're gonna, the virus is going to get activated in your body. Mm-hmm. And it, I haven't shown any symptoms uh, for the past 10 days. Is there any delay in receiving the virus? Uh, Could it be uh, lower or stronger in the body if it shows up?
1: Yeah. Uh, Joe, great question. And we, of course, hope you don't show any symptoms and uh, don't have the coronavirus. Uh, Dr. Kilgore, if you are exposed to somebody, how long before you can be certain that you cannot get sick?
0: So the recommended time for observation is 14 days. And that 14-day period is based on data we know we've learned from the investigations telling us about the incubation period. The median incubation period is around five days, but there are some people that have shorter incubation, some people longer, and there's some people that even go beyond the 14, but for the most part, if we monitor people and watch for signs and symptoms during that 14-day period, we're gonna catch the vast majority of people that would manifest infection and signs and symptoms from infection if they were exposed. So. Based on the 20-day, you, you were exposed on the 20th, and now it's the 30th, so you've been 10 days. Another four days, and I think you could be pretty certain you're in the clear. Um, of course, if you see any signs and symptoms, write them down and then get in touch with your healthcare care provider just to keep them abreast and apprised of how you feel, and they might guide you uh, with respect to testing and other things that you can do.
1: Okay, Dr. Paul Kilgore, Associate Professor and Director of Research at Wayne State University's College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences. Always great to have you here to answer these questions for our listeners. Thank you very much for coming by.
0: Thank you very much, Stephen.
1: Okay, that's going to do it for us today. I will be back tomorrow morning with more Detroit Today. I hope you will join us then. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.